find you're listening to Thinking Off Piste, a podcast for adventurers. We share inspiring stories from professional mountaineers, skiers, boarders, bikers, climbers and hikers who have gone against the grain, abandoned their comfort zone and found success through their dare-to-be-different attitude. Thinking Off Piste is brought to you by Maybe Ski, a Whistler-based adventure ski company creating bucketless ski trips across the globe. If you're looking to get off the beaten track and away from the crowds, head over to maybeski.com to discover what lies beyond your lift pass. Today I'm talking with Bayat Steiner, who is the co-owner of the popular heli-ski company, Bella Kula. The company offers multi-day heli-ski adventures on over 3,250,000 acres of wilderness. They're also the first heli-ski company in the world to surpass carbon neutral and become climate positive. So tell me, Bayat, when was the first time you ever went heli-skiing? Um, yeah, so I actually do remember that it's, um, we were on a road, my first filming trip in, uh, Christmas, 1983, with, uh, eight of us from Simon Fraser university drove down to Mexico to ski Popocata pedal, which is a 18,000 foot volcano. Wow. Um, what's that in meters? I don't know. You'd have to look it up. I don't have that in from, but, um, yeah, so we went down, you know, the project was to, the film was called in search of the ultimate run. And we skied a resort in California and then skied on the beaches in Cabo San Lucas at the tip of Baja and then over to Popocata Pedal, which is south of Mexico City, uh, climbed and skied that and then skied a bunch of resorts on the way back through the United States back to Vancouver. And um, our van broke down in uh, Durango, Colorado, and we had to change the engine. <sighs> and so we it was an unplanned stop. But. We, there is a ski resort near Durango called the Purgatory. And so we, you know, showed up and asked for tickets and they gave us lift tickets. And they even towed us into this new area by a snowmobile that they'd cut the runs, but the lifts weren't in place. So we were with the ski patrollers, a couple of them. And they said, oh, we're trying to get a heli, heli skiing company started. And, you know, uh, if you want to come out and film it tomorrow, you should, we, could, we could set that up. So I'd never been in a helicopter at that point. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, we all said, yes, absolutely. You know, it was just a little movie. So I'm surprised that they went to the expense of doing that. But I guess they were also excited for an opportunity to get out. And so that was my first, that was Christmas around, well, sometime after New Year's. And so in 1984, I guess. That's epic. So you ended up filming for them, did you? We filmed a, a small segment. It's uh, it was back then we were making uh, f- films for television. It was a television documentary, so there was no home video market at that time. Uh, VCRs, I think, were just coming on the market. Yeah. But, so yeah, it was you know set up as a story, road trip story of these eight crazy guys looking for places to ski. That's epic. You mentioned your time at Simon Fraser University. So that's located on the summit of Barnaby Mountain uh, near Vancouver, isn't it? How accessible was it to go to sort of ski resorts from campus, like for you back then? Um, Well, I actually chose Simon Fraser for the flexibility that they offered. I wanted to, I was living in Switzerland in my high school years and then um, always knew I was going to do university in Canada. So when I was picking a university, it was very strategic. It had to be close to mountains. You know, it had to have a flexible schedule. So I was uh, had classes Monday through Thursday and always had Friday, Saturday, Sunday off. And Thursday night, I would jump on the bus to 
uh, Whistler and ski for three days and then back on Sunday night for classes Monday morning. And, and then I got even smarter and I did uh, summer and fall and had winters off and only took uh, essay courses so that I could hand in <laughs> all my essays on December 8th. And, uh, you know, I, all my fellow students had two weeks of exams and couldn't get away until December 18th or 20th. So I was always... <laughs> That was so strategically planned. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> I wish yeah. I had that foresight. And whilst you're at uni, you, along with some friends, would stay in Whistler Bay squatter cabins. And here you would plan and organise extreme expeditions to rarely skied slopes. Um, where did you draw inspiration to design these trips from? Um, one of my, uh, uh, you know, through for, just through luck, I suppose, is... Um, one of the guys that moved into one of our student housing in Vancouver or Burnaby um, was a few years older than myself and he'd been involved in a ski expedition to Peru and um, they made, he was the skier. So some friends and some other students had made a movie about him. And so he had this in his mind that he wanted to make another ski movie. And, uh, you know, I was a skier as well. So he said, oh, do you want to go on this trip? And I said, yeah, absolutely. This sounds like a lot of fun. And he was, so it was really through him, I think, um, the connection, because he was inspired by the French extreme skiers, uh, Patrick Valençon and Jean-Marc Bovin and Sylvain Sodan. And, you know, that extreme skiing kind of vocabulary didn't really exist in North America at that time. And, people skied on, you know, room slopes and mostly in the United States where it's below tree line. So you're skiing, you know, fairly tame type of slopes and then combined with the liability issues in the United States, they don't look kindly on people going off piece. So Canada was a little bit looser and he was inspired by that. And, and then that was also an avenue into getting attention you know, you could get a newspaper article if you first ski descent of the local mountain. And um, we would then get that attention and then try to use that to write it. Well, earn some money, first of all, to you know, write an article for a magazine, sell that, get some sponsor dollars for another expedition. And it was really uh, it was pretty, uh, pretty uh, what's hand to mouth, right? There was really no money in it. But if we could get a thousand bucks here, a thousand bucks there and pay for gas or a little bit more film to put something together, that was what we considered a win at that time. Sounds like you're onto like an untouched gem in a way. That's, yeah. I, I, I look back and think that, what do they call that now with the uh, tech industry, the first mover advantage kind of thing? You know, we were the first to start seeing a lot of local mountains that are so prominent and such easy access that they get skied all the time now that back in the mid-1980s, nobody had really thought about skiing that. Can you tell me a bit more about these extreme expeditions, like what the content was that you captured? So the, um, the, the main kind of um, driving idea was to ski uh, first ascents. So ski something that nobody had ever skied before. Um, you know, also fairly, uh, as I said earlier, it's it kind of focused on local mountains around Whistler. Stuff, you know, it started with stuff that you could see from the resort, but 
would require walking or some touring to get there. And then we expanded up and down the Sea to Sky Corridor, seeing some of the prominent peaks you could see as you were driving north or south of Whistler. And then um, from that, we kind of expanded into a little bit wider, seeing some of the, we see the highest peak in British Columbia, uh, Mount Waddington, or at least the snow summit. So it's not the, there's two summits. We didn't ski the rock summit, obviously, but we skied the slightly shorter snow summit. We tried to ski Mount Robson, which is the highest mountain in the Rockies, but we didn't, I was not successful on my expedition to do that. But my friend Peter Shinovsky did end up skiing it. So, you know, this, that's, that was the motivation to ski stuff that nobody had skied before and, and be in the, well, and be in the mountains because we've always enjoyed being in the mountains in whatever form. It's amazing. How did you go about finding the, like the, this untouched terrain? How did you get there? Um, it was very easy back then because you saw it from the road, right? You, as you were driving to Vancouver, you could see, oh, look at that. We could go ski that. How do we get there? You know, and look at the maps. And sometimes we would walk from the bottom up and, um, you know, that was big efforts. But, or if you had a few extra dollars, we could hire a helicopter and, and land somewhere at the bottom of the slope with some overnight camping gear and, you know, make a, make a trip out of it and stay for a week and ski a few things. Cool. And you um you mentioned sort of media and organizations that you could sell articles to. Is this how you would then sort of fund the trips and doing these expeditions? Yeah. So I was at the time unemployed, um, had a philosophy that if you don't spend it, you don't have to earn it. So hence <laughs> I was staying in squatters cabins where it didn't cost anything to stay. Uh, you know, finding, walking up the ski mountain, if they wouldn't give us complimentary tickets, we would rather than spend, you know, it wasn't even that expensive then, but rather than spend 40, 50, $60 on a lift ticket, we would just walk up instead because that was seemed more cost effective. Um, so, the, yeah, so we, we didn't need much money, but we, we used that attention or I, I wrote a bunch of articles for magazines and stuff like that where you would, you know, I can't remember what it is, but you'd earn five hundred or a thousand dollars, or if you sold a couple of photos, you might get fifteen hundred dollars, right? From that, that kind of uh, article, and then of course the movies. We were selling, um, making um, these television documentaries, and I mean they weren't blockbusters by any means, but you know they did sell to uh, Discovery Channel at that time. A lot of the cable channels were just starting up. So um, Discovery was one of them that at that time would buy content from, uh, well, people like independent production companies like ourselves and would air it. And again, it's, it didn't pay my living expenses, but it did pay for the costs of making the films. And back then it was, you know, things have changed so dramatically in the last 20 years with the digital revolution. But when we were making the movies, you know, it was expensive. You had to buy film and then you didn't see what you had filmed until you could afford to have the film processed. And, and then you had to pay to have it transferred to videotape. And those were, you know, for us, those were big costs. So everything that was generated by these movies would then go back into the next movie. That's amazing. You mentioned um, sort of Whistler based the 
uh, squatter cabins. Can you describe what they are for me, what they're like to stay in? Um, they could be uh, uh, quite a, a, big, a big range of different levels of, <laughs> of comfort. So I stayed in, um, one winter I stayed in what's called the prospector's tent. So if you imagine like a white wall tent with the, we built a, I built a plywood floor and had carpeting and had a couch or sorry, an armchair and a bed, of course. And, and I had a, a, a small stove in there as well. And so I kind of lived in there, stayed in there. Now it sounds rougher than it was because <laughs> I did have access to the Simon Fraser University club cabin where I could shower and, and cook and stuff like that. But, you know, I was, sleeping on this in this uh, this tent and then I upgraded to a, a squatter's cabin that had been built by two friends and they were quite handy and good with building things so you know it was a two-floor cabin with uh, two bedrooms in the loft the full kitchen and a living room <laughs> a beautiful alcove with all windows out looking into the forest and a hundred steps away there is a sauna with a bathtub buried in the creek so in the winter it would be completely covered in ice but there was still flowing water through there so you could have a, a sauna and then jump in the creek that sounds great the, it's like ski yeah, bum life but like in the most premium way <laughs> it, it was it was really good right it was of course back then, uh, no electricity oh well there was a generator you could fire up the generator if you wanted to but for the most part you didn't need that there was gas lamps and you know, propane cooking facilities and candles. And, you know, I, it was really neat, actually. A really an adventure, right? 100%. So can you walk me through what a typical day looked like back then? Um, well, yeah, okay. That's pretty easy because it was basically, you know, wake up, have breakfast, go to the ski hill, ski all day, come home, uh, you know, make a big pasta dinner, eat, and then kind of collapse. <laughs> and then do it again the next day and uh it wasn't you know in a lot of ways it probably wasn't other than the skiing which was you know fantastic and we skied a lot it wasn't uh not for everybody because we certainly you know generally never went out never went to the bar or never went to a restaurant or had a beer you know the classic après ski it's we didn't really have money for that so you, know, you might sit down and have one beer occasionally and then go home because that's where you knew you wouldn't spend any money, I guess. But then you got so much, you got so much slope time and so much mountain time, which people would spend such a fortune on now just to have. So that's awesome. Yeah, no, that's right. Right. The, my time, uh, my time was worth more than what I could earn at a, at a job. And that's because I knew what I wanted to do. And that's was I wanted to ski. And if you, once you have a season's pass and, you know, once you're, if you're eating pasta uh, and, you know, obviously we weren't buying any meat or anything like that. So we were vegetarian. We called it being budgetarian rather than vegetarian. <laughs> but, you know, essentially that's, so in some ways, you know, people can think, oh, that's a super boring life, but we sure, we sure ski a lot. That's so good. So was there a particular moment or a day that you remember where you decided to combine your love of skiing with like your like cinematography work? Um, I think that was more a, a progression. Um, I didn't have a film background. I didn't study film at university. But because of the friends I ended up making through 
living in Whistler and, and being involved in the, uh, these kind of extreme skiing expeditions, you know, the other people were making the films and I was a skier for the first two movies. And then at some point, you know, there would be a project to do and the, the cinematographer wasn't available, but I'd want to go film. And so I picked up a camera and started filming. And I also have to admit to um, that uh, I, I did meet some people after the first, after our first movie, I met some other local Whistlerites that were skiers. And it was pretty obvious that they were much better skiers, more athletic than I could be. So, you know, it's kind of a, uh, an obvious transition from saying, well, you know, nobody's, I'm not the person to film. I can film you guys sort <laughs> of doing this stuff because you do it better than I do. So Fair that enough. was my, that was kind of my transition from, from skiing into being the cinematographer. And then that, the, the whole post-production because the cinematography is really just one small element of making a film. So then that post-production process is you, you learn through working with, um, you know, we would have uh, in Canada, the, uh, the uh, television, the government television station is called CBC, and we would edit our films at the CBC offices. So you work with a post-production engineer at that time, and you learn that that kind of tricks and how to do it from from those people. That's really cool. And in 1989, you met Craig Kelly, who was a reigning world champion of snowboarding at the time. Um, and together you created films that showcased to the world some great ski and snowboard destinations. How did you come to meet him? Um, so, yeah, that was a watershed in 1989. Um, we had been making these ski movies for television for about six years and there was no money in it really, right? It was just hand to mouth. And then uh, we were trying to raise some money for another ski movie and from a ski store, ski shop in Montreal and, the guy, um, it was my partner who went to had that conversation, but he told Jacques, he said, um, why are you guys making ski movies? You should try to make a snowboard movie. It's, it's booming on my ski store. I'm selling way more snowboards now than skis. And there's all this energy. There's all this money in snowboarding. So uh, make a, you should make a snowboard movie. And by the way, the world champion lives just south across the border in, you know, uh, uh, Washington. So I was like, oh, okay, yeah, why maybe, right? And something <laughs> new, because when you're making movies, obviously it's also, you know, that's, you have to capture something new for interest's sake. So we reached out to Craig Kelly and asked him if he'd like to be involved in a movie and, you know, a little bit of, I guess, he wanted to make sure we were legitimate. And, and we started filming um, in, uh, I guess it would have been in uh, spring of 1989, so we was really the whole movie was filmed in the spring and over the summer and we released it fall of 1989. And that was combined with the whole home video revolution where people had VCRs in their houses and the TVs and bars would run uh, video content, you know, for people to look at as they're having their beers. And uh, so we could start selling these videotapes. And that was the first, uh, co you know, combined with switching to snowboarding, we we designed the whole product differently rather than a television documentary. It was really just eye candy for snowboarding that goes into a videotape. You sell it in a store or a ski shop. Uh, you know, people, kids mostly would buy it. 
they would play that tape, you know, until it fell apart so that they could get the energy to go for snowboarding, but more so to, to learn the tricks, right? They would watch Craig Kelly and what did he do and what's the latest trick and how do you do it? And so then the, that's why they would watch it so many times and you just have music, right? There's no story. It's just snowboarding, music, action. <laughs> All eye candy, that's excellent. What were some of your influences as a cinematographer? What inspired the shots on the projects that you did? Um, yeah, not anything really specific, but of course, you know, um, they're the big names in the industry at that time, Warren Miller, you know, who's been making ski movies since the 1940s. And so, you know, there was always this idea that it is possible, right? You, if you can figure it out, there is a way to make a living and a life um, as a film, you know, specializing in mountain or ski films. And so that as you're not making any money and wondering where your life is going and your mom's worried about you, <laughs> You know, it's like, well, you know, other people have done it, so it's not completely new. Um, and your work took you to some really beautiful destinations around the world, including Japan, Argentina, Russia, New Zealand, Iran, Greenland. Was there a particular favourite project of yours? There's a few favourite projects, but it always comes back to, the, uh, uh, you know, the one that sticks out, I suppose, is, is Greenland. It's a uh, such a, a stark landscape with, uh, you know, mountains straight into the ocean, powder snow right into the ocean, and, you know, essentially nobody around other than these tiny little communities that sprinkle along the coast. So that, that was, I really feel fortunate that the opportunity that I was able to go to Greenland, I went on two trips and one of the trips was a three week trip. So we had a good chunk of time to, uh, to, to be there. One of the, not regrets, but one of the, um, you know, as a filmmaker and making these ski movies, my, some one of the frustrations, I suppose, is, is that you're, all, you're all, always in and out, right? You quickly, you go somewhere, you get the job done, and then you have to go somewhere else. So, you know, you go to some really cool places and you don't feel that you've had the time, as much time as you would have liked to have been there. Yeah, I think that's one of the catch-22s of going for work because at the end of the day, you can only go for as long as it takes to get the job done. And actually, there's a whole other world you want to add on, like a three-day holiday to explore afterwards or something like that. Um, yeah. But yeah, it makes sense. Did you ever have any access problems or issues with permission when going to like film and shoot in locations like them? Um, yes, quite a few, actually. And uh that's why filmmakers in general have this quote that it's better to beg for forgiveness than to ask for permission. <laughs> because quite often, you know, you can get something, you can get a lot of work done before a red flag goes up and somebody asks you, what the hell are you doing here? That's right? hilarious. <laughs> and if you ask for permission, of course, you're never going to get it. So, well, you know, not never, but if you, it's, it's, anyways, better to beg for forgiveness. I think that's a great quote. <laughs> Um, in the process of filming the content, do you recall any sort? Did you have any dangerous moments where things completely just didn't go to plan? In the mountains, and specifically, we yes, lots of them actually. Um, I guess uh, with that line of work with extreme sports, yeah, it must come with the job in a way. Yeah, there's been you know lots of close calls, 
lots of times when I don't even know how close the call was, but you know, one, um, I think I can relay one story, um, you know, being in Iran, we managed to, and that's also access problems there, but, you know, we had this uh, idea that we would be really cool to go heli skiing in Iran. So we contacted, um, uh, I can't remember who it was, um, but we ended up speaking to a pilot who had access to, you know, one of these giant Russian helicopters. And we drove to this military airport, um, you know, up to the helicopter. Um, we weren't allowed to pull out our cameras until we were in the helicopter. We paid him $3,000 US and cash and off we go, right? And then realized that um, the pilot had never landed on snow before. Um, you know, it wasn't, we don't know what level of training he had for mountain flying, but you know, as we're trying to land this helicopter in the mountains, he didn't want to put it on the snow. So we had to jump out of the helicopter and, and then, you know, pass down the gear. And then when we went to get picked up, you know, same story, climbing into a helicopter that's flying. And then um, the, uh, the image I have is of uh, Dean Cummings, who was on one of the skiers on the trip on our second landing. And the pilot's trying to landed in a hollow instead of on a on a bump right where you have more that's better so for like in a dip. You, yeah you've got he's landing it in a dip so there's so the terrifying pilots, <laughs> yeah there's the two pilots there's an engineer and he's got the door open and the engineer is looking out of the machine oh talking to the pilot telling him how close the tail rotor is getting to the rock right and oh. by this point we're all yelling saying you know Cancel, let's just get out of here. We're done. We got our one run in. We've got shots of the helicopter. We don't need any more. Yeah. And Dean Cummings is holding on to the back of the engineer and yelling at us saying, if there's a tail strike, I'm, I'm yanking this fucker out of the way and I'm jumping. Right? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm sitting with my camera gear on my lap going, great, you know, what do I do? But we survived that one. Oh my goodness. So over the course of those years, what's one of the most important lessons you've learned with regards to the mountains? Um, I guess um, is to uh, work with a qualified mountain guide. <laughs> yeah, okay. When we first started, uh, you know, obviously we didn't have money for that. And, and there was a lot less awareness about mountain safety and avalanches, at least in my environment and the people I was engaged with and we did a lot of things without you know the ability to communicate for a rescue if somebody had gotten hurt um you know nobody sometimes knew where we were and um, as time moved along we started working more and more with um what, what we call them mountain safety coordinators so somebody who is basically in charge of that, right? As a cinematographer, the filmmaker, you're busy doing your job. The athletes have their thing that they need to focus on. And you need somebody that steps back and can just be there and jump into action when something goes wrong and has all the, you know, has the radio, knows it's working, knows who to call. And it's, you know, it's uh, yeah, pretty simple, but I think a key element of being in the mountains. Fair enough. 
Uh, I think that's really good advice. I wanted to sort of step out for a minute and ask a few questions about your company. So um, how did you come to form your company Adventure Scope Films? Is this who you were working with uh, over the course of time we've just discussed or is that something that came afterwards? Um, the first company we had was actually called Extreme Explorations. That's the one we were making our television documentaries under. And then a, a new person kind of jumped in on board with our team. Um, uh, Jacques Oiseau and some other people dropped out. So we started, uh, Jacques and I started uh, the Adventure Scope. And that's the one that we used to make the snowboard films. So it was kind of a transition at that point. And then we made the snowboard films for until um, about 1997. And at that point, um, lots of other people were starting to make snowboard movies, you know, younger snowboarders rather than I'm a, at this point, I'm an older skier, so I'm not cool. And there, you know, so that it was time to, to, to uh, make a, a, another switch, I guess. And I started doing, um, uh, working independently as a freelance cinematographer. And uh, that was really good too. I mean, I worked on a, one of the, highlights there as I was made a series of uh, documentaries, uh, the making of IMAX Extreme. So there was a uh, crew filming surfing and windsurfing and rock climbing, working with, you know, world-class athletes in a, in, a, in a sport, which I was not that engaged in and didn't know these people. So, you know, yeah, it was a, I think it was a three-month project and traveled to lots of really cool locations and met lots of really good people and had actually such liberty to do my own thing, right? There was, the focus wasn't on me. I was just documenting what was going on. That's super cool. And through Adventure Scope Films, you uh, like established a trend for shooting extreme videos, as you said, um, and you began to use helicopters to sort of fly to remote mountain areas, searching for the best sort of terrain. What were some of the things you'd look out for when you were scouting new slopes? Obviously, snow and the steepness of the terrain. But is there anything else that was set mountains apart for you? Uh, like in different mountains in different parts of the world? And yeah. yeah they, um, you, you're always looking for something new to film because it's, inter it's more interesting, uh, to, for both for myself and for the audience that's, that's going to be watching it. Um, but you know, you're, as a filmmaker, I'm looking for light you know, what's going to look nice on the camera, you know, side light, the sun's just hitting it. There's no point in filming something if it's flat and it doesn't look interesting. So, you know, it's just working with the athletes, we would fly in, uh, you know, at, in the helicopter, you have this team in the machine and you going into an area you've never been before. And, you know, you from a map, you can maybe have some indication, but you know, you say, okay, let's go check out this area. And then you get there and, you know, okay, well, where's the light? And, and uh, is the light going to be good in half an hour or is it going to be better at the end of the day? Do we come back at a later date and then work, you know, so I guess the cinematographer is the first person to kind of speak up and say, what about that? You know, would you want to ski that? And the athlete, you know, look at it and say, oh yeah, yeah I see a perfect line. I can do that jump. I can do this. And, and that, and, and then the uh, safety person would kind of chime in and say, you know, the, the uh, snow pack is, I'm suspicious about the snow pack on that aspect. You know, if you're going to do that, you know, you need to 
maybe better to do something else first and we can see how the snow reacts and, or I should dig a pit or, you know, whatever level of, of, so it's kind of, it's really a team effort. Yeah. Cool. So tell me about Bella Cooler. In February of the year 2000, you and two friends and I believe business partners discovered Bella Cooler. And at this point you decided to apply for a heli ski permit yourself. Um, can you take me back to that day? What happened that sort of built to you making that decision? At, uh, so I was working as a, as a um, freelance cinematographer and, you know, contacting, uh, working with some of the people I'd met over the years, you know, companies like Matchstick Productions, uh, uh, TGR, you know, they're making these ski movies. They were still making an annual ski movie and um, pitching it to them, basically saying, hey, listen, I've got... I know there's a helicopter in Balakula. It's nobody's ever been there before. The mountains are really big from what I hear. Um, you know, why don't you send some athletes up and we've, well, we've got the accommodation. We can deal with the logistics of it for you and we'll send you the footage. And, and so um, Standard Films was the first one that said yes to that. Uh, they were making snowboard movies and they sent up I do remember it was Tom, you know, Tom Burt, who was a very well-known snowboarder at the time. And, and Jason, um, I can't remember his last name, but you know, there's four snowboarders that came up. And so off we went, you know, we drove up to Balakula. No, sorry, we flew up to Balakula, had our accommodation set up, met the pilot who ended up being the single best helicopter pilot I've ever flown with. So I was kind of this bonus. And uh, off we went into the mountains and, you know, after that first trip, uh, we were there a week or 10 days. And, you know, at the end of that first trip, it was like, wow, that was really good, right? That was, we found so many things to film and this valley is just amazing and we want to come back here. So then back in Whistler sent out, you know, the uh, note to Matchstick and said, hey, we've got this really cool place we can film, send up some athletes and we'll get it done. So matchstick sent up some athletes in march and then uh we wanted to do and then my uh the, the, this was my friend swede and myself doing this and then our third partner who became third partner christian uh, uh contacted us says oh i've got this contract to do this promo film for rosignol and i wanted to go to this location but now i'm hearing it's not very good it's too warm it's in april and swede and i said oh, well, we've got the perfect place. We should go to Balakula and we'll do it in Balakula. So then on that third trip, the three of us are there. And on one of the down days when it's, the weather wasn't good for filming in the mountains, we were driving around the valley because a Christian wanted to have more than just skiing in this, in this film, right? He wanted to make a story. And there was, uh, we also had the First Nations component in that. We filmed a carver, but... We were driving around the valley looking for things to film and we drove into this location called Tweezer Park Lodge and it's all closed because it's the winter. But we stepped out of the car and I don't remember which the three of us it was, but you know, we stepped out of the car and we're looking around going, holy shit, this, this place is just amazing. It's a beautiful property looking at you know two mountains with huge relief, snow-capped, giant trees, this pristine river flowing past. And that like, sounds how amazing. Come, how come nobody is held skiing here? Why isn't there a lot? There's a lodge, there's mountains, and there's no heli skiing operation. 
And then, you know, the next comment was, well, if we do, if somebody's going to do it, right? It's Heliskeen was kind of booming at that time. Uh, 2000 is that big tech buildup, um, you know, Heli, so somebody's going to do it. And, and then the next comment from the third one is, well, if somebody gets a heli-skiing tenure here, then it's going to make it difficult for us to film here. Because one of the reasons we were exploring always is that in Whistler, where we had done a lot of our filming over the years, and the local heli-skiing companies weren't too happy with that, right? It's, it creates not conflict. Well, conflict, it creates problems for them because heli-skiing is all about providing this, you know, very safe product. Um, and in Whistler in particular, it's usually people who've never done it before. So yeah, they're okay. skiing very low angle, very, very safe terrain, and it's very managed. And you get, certainly get your element of younger guys who, you know, they're heli skiing and then they see this incredible ski track across the valley. They go, I, I want to go do that. <laughs> and, yeah. and, you know, the Whistler heli skiing guy goes, no, 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 we're not doing anything like that. <laughs> Right. That's so funny. So, and for that reason, we were usually uh, more, it was easier for us to go somewhere where there was no heli-ski company. So yeah, so those three things, like how come nobody's doing it? Somebody else is going to do it soon. And then if they do, then we can't film here. And at that point, we thought this is, we can just film here for the rest of our lives. Right? We don't need to travel. We don't need to go to Iran. You know, we can just come to Valakula we, it's our place. Yeah, so then we, uh, that later that fall, we then took it more seriously, you know, and I contacted a, a, a consultant and started the application process with the government to get the heli skiing tenure, anticipating that we would really only use it for filming. We didn't really, the plan wasn't to start heli skiing with guests. And then in um, August, uh, we got the tenure. It takes a while, right? It's, it's a slow process with the government. But we got the permit in August 2002. And then um, you know, after 20-plus years in the ski business and my friends also having a similar amount of time, um, we emailed everybody we knew and the people that we would dealt, had dealt with over the years and said, oh, hey, we've got this heli-ski tenure um, we could take you heli skiing if you know of somebody or if you want to come or, and uh, kind of to our surprise from by the time February rolled around, we had 40 people signed up for the heli skiing part of things. Yeah. So we used the money that they paid us to buy the safety equipment, you know, the peeps, the shovels and hire the guides. So, uh, um, you know, it was, we didn't make any, we didn't earn any money on it, but, we managed to kind of bootstrap our ways up, up into an actual business. You set it up uh, in a way so that you yeah, could keep growing there. And um, there was definitely a turning point there for me when um, a contact of Christian Beijing's a local Whistler guy, showed up. Uh, he booked eight seats. So he came up twice that year with a group of four, and he showed up on my deck at my house and gave me like a $90,000 check. And, you know, that I'd never seen that amount of money before. And it's like, wow, this is for real, right? This is an opportunity. And then the second year, we had 60 people. That was the winter 2004. And then there was a really big jump. And we ended up, we had 120 people come and ski with us in 2005. Wow. And that, not so coincidentally as the last winter that I did any filming. 
because by this point it was, you know, we could start paying ourselves a salary. Um, you could see that there was this, you know, really incredible opportunity to grow this business into something very special. Yeah, it sounds like it was in high demand, so. Yeah. yeah. So you now have the largest permitted heli ski area in the world with 15,500 square kilometres of terrain. And you've also been voted the world's best heli ski operator for four consecutive years. So congratulations. Thank you. You're also the first heli ski company in the world to surpass carbon neutral and become climate positive. Can you describe what that means for me? Um, climate positive means that we offset 110% of our carbon that we emit. So that's in a nutshell. You know, what, if uh, diving deeper into it, it's, we are measuring um, everything from the jet fuel we use in the helicopters, which is obviously the biggest impact, but also the employee commutes, um, you know, the paper we buy, the electricity we use. There's a, we work with a company called Offsetters, and they have formulas for figuring out, you know, if you buy, I don't, you know, 10 pounds of paper, what is the carbon required to produce that cake, that paper, and also the shipping to get it from, you know, the, where it's produced to our office. So, you know, we, uh, I think it starts with them measuring your, your impacts and then come up with a plan to start trying to reduce that. Um, you know, there's a limited scope for us to reduce the helicopter impacts. Um, but, uh, you know, the long, the long term goal is to use carbon capture technology to generate and produce fuels, aviation fuels. And there's a company in Squamish that has got pilot projects doing exactly that. So, you know, the, we, we do want to be, um, you know, follow the UN recommendations on climate and you know, I won't be involved anymore, but by 2050, uh, you know, hopefully Balakula Heli Sports could be, uh, have a zero carbon footprint. Uh, in terms of emission, anything we emit, we would then, you know, hire or work with companies like uh, this carbon um, company in Squamish and recapture that back out of the air. That'd be so cool. What inspired you to go like climate positive? Um, well, I have kids. Right, and they're looking at a, I suppose, a fairly scary future if if uh, there's no action taken, um, and uh, I don't want to give up skiing or, in, you know, more particularly heli skiing, um, because it's you know it's really a peak experience, right? And it'd be a sadder world if we have to live in a way that we can't enjoy some of these. Uh, peak experiences, right? And any, regardless of what it is, I think most experiences of this nature require some kind of travel and, and will produce, have some kind of carbon impact. So in the short term, what can we do both as um, to at least account for the carbon we are producing and to also make a social statement that, you know, that, that, uh, to, to inspire others, I suppose, to do the same thing. I mean, we were inspired by a company called Black Home Aviation, which is a local helicopter company in Whistler. And they went carbon neutral a couple of years ago, and they gave a speech or a talk at our 
a Helicat Canada annual meeting, which is the industry body that we, we are part of. And when they, you know, they said, well, we're, we do this. And as well, if they're a helicopter company and they can do it, why would, you know, we not be able to do it? And prior to that, I assumed it was too expensive or, um, you know, that yeah, I hadn't looked into it, but then you go look into it and you realize it is possible. You know, the expense isn't even that high. Um, contrary to what lots of people think, um, heli, helicopters are very expensive, but they're not really expensive because of the fuel you're burning. It's because of the maintenance that's involved. So, you know, the, the output on a day of helicopter skiing for the average day is per, per individual is the same as driving your mid-sized SUV from Vancouver to Whistler and back to Vancouver. Wow. So, you know, it's not, the, yeah. the outputs aren't outrageous to, to start with. So the, to offset it is completely manageable for us. It makes you think that everyone should really be looking at their footprint in that way. Generally speaking, what do you think people can do in day-to-day life to be more climate positive? Um, I, I think it's the, maybe some of the more little things that people don't pay attention to. Um, you know, like one of the things that I would do is we keep our house. We live in Whistler. It's a cold environment. I'll keep the house fairly. We keep our house fairly cold in the winter. We put sweaters on. Right? We don't turn up the heat so that we can walk around in a T-shirt inside the house. So this is kind of a, you know, these are the kind of things that happen every single day that if you knock that back by 10%, you're going to have a bigger impact, I think, than by, you know, foregoing that one special trip. Um, another thing is, you know, I don't know how many, what I, I live, I'm lucky, but I've also engineered it that way, is I live close to my office. I walk to work. I don't do a daily commute. But, you know, the, the heli skiing day, is equivalent to driving, say, 300 kilometers in a mid-sized SUV. And there's people who do that commute on a daily basis where, you know, they'll do half that distance. Um, lots of people do half that distance on a, every single, you know, 250 days a year. Yeah. And I think that's the kind of lifestyle things that would make more impact on, um, it, as an individual, right? I mean, there's things the government can do, um, carbon tax you know a carbon tax i think seems to make the most sense to me and businesses and people start paying for the uh, actual cost of transportation rather than the uh, that that includes the environmental impact rather than just you know how the cheap to pull the oil out of the ground and process it relatively but it's not the full cost and you, your company effectively goes the extra mile by offsetting 10% more than you produce. Um, out of interest, what did the leap between carbon neutral and climate positive look like? Did it require a lot of work to go that extra, that extra step? No, it's the, the, the work is in measuring. So the, I mean, that's really where most of the work happens is you got to um, go through all your financial stuff and track where you spent money and that's the kind of the basis for what the offsetters the, uh, will men then measure and give you a number and said, for example, we, um, this is a few years ago now, but in 2019, I think we produced uh, 1,093 uh, tons of carbon. 
So, you know, the choice then, if you want to be, um, uh, you could be a, a carbon neutral company and you offset 1,093 tons of carbon. And uh, that's great, right? But I think uh, for us, to me, it was still an acknowledgement that, you know, it's still better not to produce the carbon at all. So to compensate for that, you know, to compensate for that, we wanted to do that extra 10% as a, an acknowledgement that it's not the solution. It's only a short term. It's a stopgap solution for the time being. And hence, we wanted to do a bit extra. Give something back. Yeah. I wanted to ask you a bit more about your heli skiing packages as well. Um, and also the areas you canvas, uh, because you have access to 3.24 million acres of terrain through your heli-ski permit area. One of the great perks of travelling up to that high would be the reduced number of, sort of borders and skiers that are on the mountainside alongside you. With the reduced traffic flow of people, is there more exposure to wildlife up there, or are you more inclined to see sort of bears, wolves and other creatures in the mountains? Um, I'll put it in perspective for you. So we have a capability of hosting about 55 guests per day okay. over five different uh, locations, five different lodges. They're all boutiques, small lodges. Um, our area that we can ski in is larger than the Swiss Alps. So wow. <laughs> the Swiss Alps are about 13,000 square kilometers. The, you know, the places where you could potentially ski in Switzerland. And I don't know how many skiers Switzerland hosts on a, on a daily basis, but you know, I mean, it must be hundreds of thousands of people skiing in oh my that gosh. area and we do a maximum of 55 a day so it's, oh it's not the same it's not the same experience it's <laughs> just on a different you know it's a different sport is it's kind of uh, i try to explain heli skiing sometimes and it's it's not that it's it's different it's not like it's skiing and it's a step up it's kind of a different experience altogether a whole other uh, ball game yeah, that combination of being in such a remote environment, the, the privilege of, of being there, you know, the, uh, the helicopter experience of flying through the mountains is, is you know, equally attractive uh, as, a, as a, an experience. I mean, people will just pay to have that experience. And then, to, and then, you know, the cherry on the cake is you get out and you can ski uh, pristine snow conditions. So it's, that's a, it's a privilege to be able to do that. Sure. There's another part of your question that I didn't answer. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, does the additional ex um, exposure... Oh, the wildlife component. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, we have uh, uh, extensive wildlife mitigation plans in place for both our company, and that's directed from the, our industry body, Helicat Canada, and, and mandated by the provincial government. So we see wildlife, we immediately leave the area, but um, the, the uh, over, you know, we, and we keep very accurate records of both, uh, you know, even seeing tracks are recorded, the guides recorded and we have a, a database and that all gets sent to wildlife biologists. Um, often heli companies have more information than the wildlife biologists because they don't have the budget to be flying around the way we do. Um, but uh, we actually almost never see wildlife. Oh, so we're, we're, yeah, you know, we're, we're flying in, uh, we're skiing on glaciers a lot. We're skiing up in very remote mountain terrain. And, you know, it's not an attractive place for animals to try to eke out a living. 
Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So, you know, we see what we see is um, sometimes we'll see uh, wolverine tracks. I've never actually seen a wolverine, but uh, I have seen wolverine tracks, and they do traverse, you know, at higher elevations as they, they cover a lot of ground. So they'll move from area to area, and they're an extraordinary animal. Love to see one, but uh, haven't had that uh, good fortune. Sometimes uh, mountain goats. Um, that's perhaps the biggest concern from our wildlife biologists that we work with, that um, to give them lots of space and make sure that we don't uh, spook them and have them you know, move a great distance and, and burn a bunch of valuable energy in the middle of the winter. That's cool, though. I wanted to also talk to you about some of your other projects coming up because you've recently launched a yacht-based heli-ski experience, which allows guests to heli-ski direct from their 138-inch private yacht. And our partners, Maybe Ski, who produced the Thinking of Peace podcast, are working with you on the project, which is super exciting. Um, can you describe the package here in more detail is there, or what guests can expect from the experience? Um, yeah, no, I'm really excited about this yeah. one. It's kind of come full circle for us because... <laughs> We, uh, uh, back in the mid-2000s, we all had a, a different boat, a yacht that we used for heli-skiing uh, called the Ocean Explorer 2 at that time. And, you know, they also had a little heli-deck on it and you could, we could host eight people. But the difference is, is that, you know, it was a narrow boat. The, the cabins were very, very small, you know, shared bathroom. So th there was a disconnect between, because heli-skiing is expensive. So, you know, how do you charge... Uh, at that time, I think it was $10,000 or $11,000 for a week, you know, charge that amount of money and then have essentially substandard accommodation. So it's, it's, it's you know, there's certain, sure, there's some young guys that love the adventure and they kind of go for that, but it was limited and there didn't really seem to be a, a really uh, constructive future in it. Um, earlier, uh, last summer, uh, a colleague involved in summer tourism on the coast contacted us and he had just retrofitted this uh, 138 foot uh, catamaran boat that he brought in from New Zealand that was designed for coastal explorations, expeditions. I mean, the bedrooms are large. Two of the rooms have king size beds in it. They've got proper bathrooms with showers nice. and <laughs> it's going to be a lot more expensive than the ocean explorer. Yeah. But you know, there are people who have those kind of resources and it has the comfort level. I, I, I think we've got a really, really special program now between, you know, the coastal marine exploration in the Bellacoula area plus the mountain exploration. And if you've looked on a map, um, the, uh, the, the inland waterways in Bellacoula are the most extensive of anywhere in the world. There is fjords going north, south, east, west, islands, you know, with the littler fjords going up and down. It is by far the most extensive area where you could kind of motor around and see a lot of different country, have, you know, different anchorages every night and be in, in what's really pristine uh, part of the world. It's part of the, uh, the Great Bear Rainforest. So it's, um, you know, it's uh, big, big trees and and very no development, right? It's uh, now there's you know, some of the logging, there's limited amounts of logging, but it's really being cut back. And the province is making a, a commitment and has made an effort to kind of keep this as the, 
largest intact piece of coastal uh, rainforest, uh, temperate rainforest in the world. What a beautiful thing to travel past. Um, so where does yeah. it sort of dock from and where would it drop you off in that case? So the, the, uh, the, the um, people would fly into Bellacula, like all our other guests, they would land there. At that point, we would do a orientation with them to do the safety exercises and the, the helicopter orientation. But as soon as that's all done, we would fly them to the boat. And at this point, the boat, uh, MV Cascadia, would be uh, anchored close to the village of Balakula and as close to the airport as we can get. And then uh, once they're all on board, the vessel can kind of head out into the larger fjord network. Um, it's stable enough that in their, under normal weather conditions, you know, the guests can have a meal, have a glass of wine standing, sitting on the table, and we would be cruising past these mountains and to our first overnight anchorage. That's and then insane. the next day they would have that opportunity to go, go skiing. The, the, the Cascadia could use, you know, take the day, go to another anchorage so they would ski and they would land back on the Cascadia that afternoon in a completely different location and Amazing. then basically repeat. That's so cool. And you've also got uh, kayaks and paddle boards on board as well that they can take out, can't you? Yes. So then if, if there is a day when uh, with heli skiing, we don't necessarily ski every day because of, of weather. If it's really uh, snowing heavily or, or um, well, it's usually visibility issues. So that if the, if the pilot can't see where he's going, uh, yeah, you don't, you're not going heli skiing. So <laughs> fair enough. So then, you know, if you are wait, if your day is delayed because of weather, you could, uh, we'll do some marine exploration, exploration, you know, wow. paddle board, some estuaries, go fishing. Uh, there's natural hot springs along the coast that again, they're pristine areas where, uh, yeah, you can, you'll have a place to yourself. And so we'll go visit that do that kind of thing on the, on days when we're not skiing or, you know, in the spring, of course, we're, we're seeing this project that's mostly for uh, March and maybe first part of April, the days are really long. You can ski until four or five o'clock and you've still got three more hours of daylight. So then you go um, do a little bit of uh, swim in the ocean, right? Or, so it's just paradise, isn't it? Yes, exactly. I want to talk about some of the other plans you have on the horizon too. I read about your plans to expand your summer program, which includes grizzly bear viewing at Tweedsmere Park Lodge. Can you tell me about the program here? Um, we, uh, of the five lodges, are now six with the MV Cascadia. Um, we run the Tweedsmere Park Lodge in the summer. This is a place where we got out of the car and had our, our brainwave and how beautiful it is. So it's uh, geographically a very extraordinary place to be and because we're on this river it's a salmon river and we have all five species of salmon that come up the river in the fall and spawn and then essentially you know they they roll over and they die and they're uh, sitting in the water very easy to catch for the bears so we have bears that come from all you know for several hundred kilometers around they'll they'll all be on the river in the fall eating salmon and at that point, it's, it's a great time to come see them because, for, first of all, they're congregated on the river. Uh, they're not aggressive because their bellies are fully are full with salmon. Not that bears are aggressive. I don't want to misconstrue it, right? I, they're yeah. not 
they're not aggressive with people, but they can be aggressive with each other. Mm-hmm. They don't, you know, they like their space, but in the fall during the salmon run, by and large, they're, they, they don't even mind each other's company, right? They're, they're, they're just focused on eating. And are they territorial creatures normally? Um, yes, they, they are to, to a certain extent. They, they leave their mark, you know, they'll scratch trees or rub up against it just so that other bears know where they are because it's about avoiding confrontation. Yeah. So some people say that you should play dead if you're approached by a bear, but we spoke to a wildlife biologist and she said that if you play dead, the bear will likely eat you. Um, I was wondering if you encountered a grizzly bear, what would your advice be? Um, well, there's different types of bears. So you have to know, first you have to be able to spot the different bears. Um, what I've been taught is, is that uh, a grizzly bear, if you have an aggressive grizzly bear, or um, you don't you 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 play dead with a, a grizzly bear because grizzly bears don't eat fresh meat, so to speak. So they might knock you around and bury you and save you for later. So <laughs> you play dead and maybe you've got a chance. Um, black bears, on the other hand, will eat fresh meat. So you got to fight for your life if you're attacked by a black bear. But I've never had a I've never had an encounter with aggressive bear. Uh, first of all, you need to want to avoid that happening. So, you know, best is to let the bears know that you're around because, again, it's about, for them, it's about uh, conflict avoidance. You know, with any wildlife, it's any type of injury is a, is a life or death situation for a wild animal. So they avoid their primary kind of, I think, operating procedure is to avoid conflict and just get on with their life and as little stress as possible. So if you let the bears know, if you're in the woods and you let bears know that you're there, I don't think it's very unlikely you would have an aggressive encounter with a bear. Um, and so that's the first step. And, you know, carry, we carry bear spray, um, for, which is very, very effective for um, turning around a bear if they are aggressive. But in, you know, in, in how many years have we been doing this now? 15 years. I don't think any of our guides have ever deployed their bear spray because we've never really had an encounter, an aggressive encounter. And then, there are, again, it's same advice as with the guides, right? If you're unfamiliar with this kind of wildlife, you know, hire a guide. It's so much more interesting to be in the woods with somebody who knows what they're looking at than to be kind of blindly walking around. Yeah, for sure. Un- walking around uninformed. Yeah. And then you know, they'll see you, the bears will let you know too, right? If they're stressed because you're too close or maybe they've got cubs and they don't really want you there, they'll, they'll let you know, right? You can see it from their behavior and then you just back away. Yeah. Well, you can take so much more away from a situation when you're with somebody who's got a trained eye and knows exactly what they're looking at, be that if you're just looking for different types of plants or trying to identify species or anything like that you're yeah, always in yeah. you're in better company if you're with someone informed so that's yeah it's, really it's more interesting it's simply more interesting to have a context around where you are mm. and i understand you're building a new heli ski lodge as well that's the dream okay so I, have to, <laughs> I have to be able to pull it together it's a really big it'd be uh uh, it would be for me. It would be a very big project, right? We want to build a okay, fingers there, crossed. Uh, a lodge that could accommodate up to twenty six skiers. Uh, we have the location for it. It's, it's a beautiful spot on a lake. 
but it's, uh, you know, it's a lot of money and a lot of elements and it's high risk, I suppose, too, for a small business like ourselves. So I'm, um, yeah. Keep it in the pipeline. Yeah. Keep it in the pipeline, keep working towards it. I've got a really great team uh, that I'm working with now. So I'm kind of freed up, I suppose, to kind of focus on some of these bigger projects like that. Cool. And is there anything else on your bucket list that you haven't ticked off yet? Yes, there is. <laughs> I, want, I really, really want to go wing suit flying. Oh my gosh, I would love to do that. wing suit flying, but... I have a, my wife isn't too keen on that. So she says <laughs> okay. I can't do it until I'm 90. <laughs> oh, I definitely think you should keep that one on your radar. Um, I've been watching the ones, who are the ones, Red Bull have got like all their adventurers and extreme sportsmen who do that all the time. And the views are amazing. Uh, cool. Yeah. And then the, uh, it's the highest risk version of it that's most attractive, right? It's the proximity flying being close to the mountains and flying the terrain and having that experience. That's yeah, I keep telling people I'm going to get reincarnated as a raven so that I can do lots of proximity flying. (laughs) Amazing. Is there anything else you want to plug or give a shout out to before we wrap up? Um, uh, well, our, I suppose our, our business partners and the, the um, you know, the, the lodge owners that we work with and, the helicopter companies we work with and the, the guides the, that we, that work for us and all our employees that work for us. It's, you know, it's such a team effort and it's really neat being involved in this kind of big moving, uh, very dynamic uh, business that has, uh, that involves so many different people that have such divergent skill sets and it's by bringing it all together that this is really possible. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today, Bea. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Becky. Thinking Off Piste is brought to you by Maybe Ski, a Whistler-based adventure ski company creating bucketless ski trips across the globe. If you're looking to get off the beaten track and away from the crowds, head over to maybeski.com to discover what lies beyond your lift pass.